This is Better Benefits, a podcast from the team at Brella Insurance. We're talking about how to use employee benefits to build a world where health hardships don't create financial burdens. If you're a broker or employer looking for fresh ideas and new products employees will actually use, this show's for you. Hi there, I'm Laura Cave, head of marketing here at Brella, and this is Better Benefits episode number 13. Today, I'm joined by Deb Gordon. She's an Aspen Institute Health Innovators Fellow and the author of the Healthcare Consumers Manifesto. Deb is a super seasoned health insurance executive, and her research has fueled her passion for helping Americans become savvy shoppers who get the healthcare that they deserve. Of course, today I'm excited to talk to her about how she thinks employers and brokers can help. You know, in recent years, there's been a perception out there that higher cost sharing would incentivize consumers to shop for less expensive care. And after they've finished their cost sharing responsibility, the payer and the employer would also benefit from lower healthcare costs. But it hasn't quite worked out that way because as it turns out, it's really hard to shop for healthcare. But after years of research, Deb is really still a believer that consumer purchasing power can be a force for positive change when it comes to bringing down the cost of healthcare and health benefits. And I'm wondering if there's a role for employers and benefit advisors to play in helping to accelerate some of those positive changes. So Deb, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's nice to be here. So to start off, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your journey and how you became so passionate about healthcare. Sure. I think it really began in college. I kind of stumbled into a course on, it was called Culture and Health. It was an anthropology course. And it it made me realize that health is a cultural construct, even just how we feel and what we think of as disease or illness is wholly dependent on how we're raised and how we look at the world. And that completely hooked me on this idea that health is so personal and so individual. There is, of course, science, but there's a lot of art in in health as well. I went on to study bioethics with a focus on public health and really became very committed and compelled by inequity and the vulnerability that health problems can create for people, both physically, emotionally, and financially. I could add that in my first job out of college, I worked in a public health research and consulting firm. And one of my first projects was focus group study with low, older, lower income women about their attitudes towards breast cancer screening. And I became just, you know, in love with the idea of consumer insights and how do you understand what motivates people is it's so simple to ask and listen and really derive insights from people themselves about how to serve them better. And that has really propelled or sort of carried through my whole career. That's awesome. So you really had a very academic foundation to your career that kind of connects to some of the academic work you've done more recently. In between times, you were a leader at a health insurance company. Is that right? 
That's right. I was I spent almost a decade as the head of marketing for a Medicaid health plan that then expanded into other insurance products, mostly for lower income or vulnerable individuals. And I learned firsthand how confusing and scary really health care can be and how the industry, I can say we did really good work and we were deeply committed to our members, but we did not, I don't think, do enough to really support consumers and what they needed. So as hard as we tried to communicate clearly, you know, there was always insurance jargon. And, you know, as clear as we tried to make our website, insurance is confusing and complicated and you can't boil it all down and make it simple. I hate when I see, you know, taglines like we make it easy. Like, do you, can you? Cause it's not easy, you know, easier. We help you navigate the mess that might be more honest, but from inside, I realized there, there was a lot more, it sort of didn't matter how much we were helping. There was more we needed to do. Mm-hmm. That sounds a lot like my journey. I can relate to that. Like, how do you get around using the word deductible? <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. And it's so confusing. <laughs> so I, yeah, I definitely feel that pain. So what did you do with that dissatisfaction? Yeah. So I found myself, actually I went on a journey to Australia, a literal journey, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and Singapore as an Eisenhower Fellow in 2013. So we were looking ahead. We were in the process of implementing the Affordable Care Act. We had already implemented Massachusetts health reform here where I am. And we, with authority, like I said, from the inside, that we were sort of selling even free and low cost subsidized insurance products, we were putting products into the market with relatively high deductibles. So of uh, uh, somebody, you know, 200% or 400% of the poverty level, which is not very high income earning, could be facing a $2,000 or $2,500 deductible. Yeah, that's making like thirty or $40,000 a year. Yeah. And most Americans of at that income level and actually just across the board don't have $2,000 or $2,500 sitting around available if they need healthcare services before they meet their deductible. And so I felt like we've got to figure out, we've got to be honest about what we're doing. So first off, we have to recognize that low deductible to an insurance executive, you know, an affordable deductible to an insurance executive is not affordable to the vast majority of Americans or lower than a really high deductible can still be a hardship. And so what I did was I took this journey to overseas to look at how were other health systems that I think most people would consider high performing. How were these health systems kind of engaging, educating, informing, and empowering consumers to make healthcare decisions? So Australia and Singapore in particular have really robust roles for individuals in their systems and particularly financial roles. So in Singapore, you know, consumers save into health savings accounts and they direct those funds. It turns out to be about a third of the healthcare spending in Singapore comes right out of individuals' medical savings, and another third comes out of pocket. So I went around the world basically to see, well, how are other people doing it? It's not that Americans can't 
handle financial responsibility for their healthcare. It's that we haven't set up our systems to adequately support them as we do that. And so I was, you know, looking for solutions. And, you know, what I think I found were, were just cultural, you know, again, back to culture and health that, you know, there were cultural differences and political differences in the belief about who should take responsibility for individuals' health. In Singapore, for example, it's very clear that, you know, you, the individual and your family are responsible for for your health and well-being. And the government, you know, nudges you to save and support your your health needs, if you will. So there's a there's a partnership or a combination between individual responsibility, which we love here, and enabling government regulation that, that makes those responsibilities, those financial responsibilities more feasible, if that makes sense. Yeah, that that's so interesting how some of your early training and early exposure to this issue came back around in, in 2013, 2014, noticing like an anthropologist, you know, why certain things work or why certain groups are engaging in a certain way. I'm wondering, so, you know, back in that time, that 2013, 2014, 2015, the deductibles were going up in ACA plans. That was sort of where I was at that time. And we've seen a similar phenomenon in the employer-sponsored plans where more and more cost-sharing responsibility has ended up on the employee's shoulder perhaps not as extreme as we see in the ACA plans, like the bronze plans, but more and more, you know, I think the average individual this past year was paying $1,650 for their deductible and up to $4,000 out of pocket. Of course, that's much higher for families. So you ended up doing some research on sort of the consumer's experience with healthcare and specifically with that cost-sharing responsibility and focus. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us about that research and about what it shows about the impact of this kind of cost-sharing. Yes. And that's part of what I did with my, you asked about what did I do with my dissatisfaction or sense that, you know, we weren't doing enough as an industry. And, you know, it's hard for one person to change, this sounds very grandiose as I'm about to say it, it's hard for one person to change an industry. I'd say it's impossible, but, you know, ideas are powerful. And so I decided to go become a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and research, you know, really go deep into my love for consumer insights and research what was, what is the American experience with healthcare purchasing? So I had in 2013 thought like, other places know how to do this. Let's just learn. You know, I still thought at that time, if you put cost sharing onto individuals, you know, Americans, especially we are fantastic shoppers. We are, you know, we're like the consummate consumers. We're we're pros. So I thought, well, it's going to work. Let me just go borrow some strategies from these high performing health systems. And then fast forward to, you know, when I went to the Kennedy School to start this research in 2017, you know, nothing had really changed except cost sharing was just going up and costs overall were not coming down and consumers were not suddenly more savvy or more invested. In fact, academic research shows that cost sharing 
it, it quote unquote works to some degree, it does suppress utilization, but it was supposed to suppress unnecessary utilization and encourage appropriate utilization and thereby lowering lower costs overall. And of course, what I learned is, and I think these large scale studies show the same that consumers can't distinguish and don't distinguish between quote unquote necessary and unnecessary or you know appropriate and wasteful utilization. They just know that they might have to pay, they might get a bill they can't afford if they go to the doctor or need healthcare services. So they just don't go. They avoid care as long as they can. And what I learned in my research with consumers was it doesn't really seem to matter that much how smart you are, how educated you are, or even how much money you have. Certainly having resources makes it easier to absorb a surprise bill. But I interviewed many, many people across, you know, I would say, you know, middle income, upper middle income walks of life, not even the most vulnerable people. And even very educated sort of middle class or upper middle class people find their health benefits completely overwhelming and almost paralyzing. So we interviewed folks who had gone through the really hassle, it is just a hassle for most people, someone called it soul sucking, of finding and choosing insurance. And, and then they go to great lengths to avoid using it because they're terrified that they don't really understand it. And most people can't really afford it if they kind of make a mistake or you know get services that they think are going to be covered that aren't. Most people can't absorb that. So that was the long answer. The short answer is cost sharing keeps people from using healthcare services. That was the idea, but people are not judicious or strategic about it. It just, it's like a, a blunt instrument. It just keeps people from the care they need and it can have really dire consequences. There are studies that show people with diabetes, you know, and people with cancer and people who obviously need ongoing care, avoid it because of high deductibles or other costs. There's, you know, my experience is that people, just the fear of just the uncertainty about costs is enough to keep people from, from even trying to use their healthcare services or health benefits. Wow. So can you translate, like, what are the implications for an employer then as they're thinking about offering health benefits? Yeah, I think there are a couple of levels to that, to the answer to your question. One is that if we think about why do we have employer benefits, and I actually did some deep research, which I loved into why do we have health benefits through work? So I have a chapter on kind of the history of that. And, you know, it's designed, you know, this, your audience knows this, but just, I think it helps to every once in a while, remember that health benefits at work were meant to be an incentive to join a firm or to stay at a firm. They were meant to, they actually came as an offset to wage freezes during World War II. And so they're meant to be part of your compensation, right? To attract and retain employees. Well, as employers shift costs onto consumers, what I heard very loud and clear from consumers, they are aware that the value of their benefits has eroded over the last several years, last decades, depending on how old the folks were that I talked to, they're very aware of that. And they blame 
policymakers for changing rules, and they blame their employer for kind of sticking it to them, if you will. Now, there are a lot of reasons why you know employers have to manage the rising cost of health benefits, but consumers don't really care. Consumers just know my employer used to cover everything, and then they added a $1,000 deductible, and then they added a $2,000 deductible, and now they've got me on an $8,000 deductible, and what's it for anyway? Like, what am I paying for? What am I getting? Why am I doing this? And so the original purpose, I think, has gone somewhat out the window. It is not, these benefits are not really helping. I mean, I guess it's better than not having them. But if you go back to the original intent of health insurance through work, it was really meant to help people access care and contribute to the overall compensation package. What's happening now is people feel extremely vulnerable, exposed, and they've watched their benefits degrade over time. And I think they blame, they blame lots of folks, but they don't blame their doctor first. They blame the insurer and they blame the employer. So that's, that's one thing. There's sort of an erosion of like, what's the point of these benefits in the first place? And I think an erosion of the relationship that, or, or goodwill that benefits are meant to build between employers and employees. So that's one. Then there are very tangible health implications. And, you know, if you are afraid to go to the doctor when you're sick or worried about something, or you're worried you won't be able to pay for a, you know, preventive screening, even if it's covered, you you might not know that it's covered. So insurance experts will say like, well, the preventive stuff's covered, but not everyone knows that. So it's it. what matters is what the consumer knows and understands, not what is true. So the truth for consumers is, I don't really understand what I've got. I'm probably not going to be covered. If I go, it'll cost me money. So I'm just not going to go. And I, I won't know how much money, and I probably won't be able to afford it. So I will just not go. What that means for employers is you now have sicker employees, you have lost productivity, all the all the sort of downsides of not getting good preventive care or ongoing care comes to work. I think, you know, perhaps no more acute or clear example than in mental health care. So it is very hard to find mental health care that's covered by insurance. It's very hard for most people to afford the mental health services they need out of pocket. So all that unmet mental health burden, depression, anxiety, you know, maybe worse, substance use, those features <laughs> stay with the employee all day long. So they are arriving at work, whether it's literally arriving or showing up on Zoom or whatever it is, with all their unmet medical and mental health needs. And that hurts employers because those employees are not optimally performing. There's no way you can do your best work when you're depressed. There's just no way. Right. Are there any examples that you could point to either from your international travels or domestically of employers who are getting around this? Because I'm sort of feeling like, okay, an employer can be sympathetic to this issue. They understand they're paying for that, you know, that they're not able to do enough for their team that they want to, because the bottom line is these things have become astronomically unaffordable for the employer too, you know? And so 
I'm just wondering if there's like, like how do we get around this? Are there any ideas that seem to be working? I think so. Yes, for sure. There are things that are working. I might offer some things that I think could work, but let me give you one example. When I worked at the health plan, we did what every other, we were not immune from rising health costs, even though we were ourselves an insurer, we still bought our benefits from somebody else. And when we found that we had to introduce deductibles to kind of lower our costs overall, we introduced a reimbursement program. So, you know, if you, if everyone has a thousand dollar deductible now, not everyone's going to use it. If we could offer to pay up to whatever amount, I, you know, I think the first year we introduced the deductible, we did say, we'll, we'll reimburse the deductible amount. Now that adds cost back in, but if you look at the economics, it can, it can be beneficial to the employer because if you save money overall and you only need to pay out the deductible for some people, not everyone's going to need that. It can both save money, you know, improve the economics and improve the goodwill that I mentioned, you know, stop the erosion of goodwill or prevent the erosion of goodwill. And it can help prevent sort of that financial anxiety or vulnerability among employees. The other thing is that there's also data that shows most employees, the vast majority of employees overbuy. So they buy more coverage than they need. And that wastes substantial amounts of money for individuals. And I think helping, you know, provide, you know, there are a lot of tools and a lot of, I'll use air quotes because I kind of hate this word, but solutions, forgive me. I know it's like the term, but there are a lot of solutions that help employees make quote unquote good decisions or economically rational decisions, which sometimes, like I said, on, you know, on the, you might save money with a higher deductible plan, even if as the employer, you pay for some of it, the same principle holds for individuals. So you might fear the deductible and want, you know, have the urge to buy more coverage so that you can avoid that uncertainty, chances are you're going to wind up spending more. So there are things that employers can do or put in place supports information, just, you know, decision support that could help folks feel more confident making an economically rational choice that will ultimately save them money. So I think literally helping with the money, the kind of financial exposure, helping educate and support those decisions. I think those are things that employers can do. And then I've recently been talking to a colleague of mine who's looking at wellness at work, mental wellness at work. And what, you know, what can, this is way off on the other end. You know, I went from like very tangible, pay the deductible if folks need need you to. On the other hand, it's like, what are the cultural contributors to stress, anxiety, depression, which, you know, have physical manifestations as well. And can employers take some responsibility for how teams treat one another? For maybe the stress they create? Yeah. Yeah. Some of it, you know, like we're all guilty. Anyone who's worked in a team or led a team, we're all, I'm completely guilty of causing other people's stress and, and my own. What if my boss or your boss or our team collectively said, we want to improve mental wellness at work? What would we do differently? And could employers take a really deep and internal look at 
the humanity of work. You know, how are we as humans to one another? And what might that do for our need for mental health care? I mean, if you're mentally ill, you know, you need mental health care. I don't mean to minimize that. But if you're stressed and that stress goes unchecked and it, you know, takes a toll on your sleep and it makes you depressed and anxious and it kind of all ratchets up, well, there are probably some social or cultural factors that could help you. And that I think is squarely in the purview of every single employer. Everyone can take a look in the mirror if they're brave enough and authentic enough, you know, look in the mirror and say, what are we doing to improve the health and wellness of our employees? It's a very long-term, it's taking a very long view and a very holistic, very human-centered view. I would love to see more of that happen. I love that. You know, and this is exactly why we started this podcast and why we wanted to have conversations exactly like this one. Because obviously, you know, Brella exists to help tackle this problem in a very specific way, you know, rather than investing in an HSA or giving folks a very expensive low deductible plan. Our pitch is that you can put people on a plan and supplement it with Brella, which provides coverage for 13,000 acute conditions so that, you know, something like 76% of the things that would take you to urgent care or that would require urgent medical attention, you're going to get a cash payout, like a benefit for it that you can use for anything, whether that's to pay towards your deductible or towards everyday life things that pick up when you're hurt or injured. And, but that's just one solution out of three or four that you just mentioned that maybe all working together can create a really different experience for the employee of, you know, access to that preventive care, to that primary care, basic primary care, you know, when you catch things early and hopefully bring overall cost down. I think that's really exciting. I did want to ask you, you know, obviously COVID has created a new world for us. And I'm curious how you think the presence of COVID-19 has, has maybe changed things in a, in a permanent way in terms of how we think about all of this. Yeah, I think first and foremost, COVID has really intensified those mental health burdens that we talked about. So again, lots of very clear cut data that anxiety and depression are at sort of unprecedented levels, as is financial vulnerability. So millions of people remain uninsured, uh, unemployed. Many of them are uninsured. The generalized anxiety in the in the world, you know, it's almost palpable, and it's been going on so long that I think when we come out of the pandemic, which I think we're going to, you know, I'm very, I'll join you in that optimism. (laughs) Yeah. I think as I see, you know, vaccination numbers rise and spring is coming and, you know, there, there are signs that as terrible as it has been there, there could be light at the end of the tunnel. And what I am told by, I've done a lot of research and writing on mental health care. And what I'm told is that we haven't seen the half of it in terms of the mental health burdens, that once you're, you you actually don't even see the full trauma markers until you're safe, until you're out of the immediate crisis. And this is a crisis that has now lasted a year. 
So whenever we come out of it, whenever people start to feel safe, I actually think we're going to see, I'm not an expert, but just from folks I've interviewed who are experts, what I understand is we should not be surprised if we see an even greater flood of mental health needs. And so I think that's the most obvious or biggest issue that I think COVID has kind of brought to the fore and illuminated what was there and made it worse. So that's one. I also think on the plus side, you know, we're on Zoom, everyone's on Zoom. Who hasn't seen a baby or a dog or a, you know, spouse kind of walking through the, you know, this the background or had the mailman, you know, the letter carrier ring the doorbell or, you know, whatever. Things are just happening. And to me, there is some great joy in all of that. I love when I, you know, watch the news and someone's dog is barking or just wandering in to the room and you realize, wow, we're just people. Sounds like life, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like there is the humanity. We are people when we go to work and we are people when we go home. And since that distinction has been blurred for so many people, you know, humanity has sort of bled over into the workday and into the work environment. And I think that could have really positive implications long-term for things like we talked about before, like, how do you feel at work? How do people treat you? How do you treat people at work? Those kinds of recognition of our mutual humanity, I think may have positive effects long-term. Yeah. I mean, I can testify being at Brella, if I can brag about my team for a second, they are the most collaborative and constructive and encouraging people I have ever worked with. And it has made such a big difference, especially since we all started working together in 2020. It has been just an enormous blessing and something that I think I didn't appreciate the level of difference that that would make in terms of my productivity, how I feel on a Sunday night about coming to work the next day. It's been amazing. And we've talked about it before, like, wow, we don't have Sunday scaries. What is that like? You know? And it's not that we're not working our butts off. Of course we are because it's a startup, but really grateful to Veer and his leadership and the tone that he has set. And as you said, it's culture, you know, it's nice to be nice, he always says. And so that's what we do. And yeah, it makes a big difference. I I think also, you know, if you, I actually interviewed someone for an article about mental health policy, like what, what should our mental health policy look like from a, you know, at a national level to improve access to mental health care. And someone, an expert said to me, you know, economic improvement, that, that people feel better when they're valued and when they have a purpose and when they can provide for themselves and their families. And so I think, you know, sort of health, access to health care and economic well-being are so intertwined and improving one will improve the other and vice versa. That's my belief. I think there's evidence. I don't think that's just my belief, but I really, really believe that these things go hand in hand. That's awesome. So what is on deck for you for the rest of 2021? Yeah, that's a good question. I ask myself that, you know, not every day, but many days. Oh, Um, oh no. Didn't mean to wander into an existential crisis. No, no. How much time do you have? No, just kidding. Um, 
I, so one of the things I was working on, I was going to work on before the pandemic hit was a developing a financial vulnerability index. So the idea that healthcare and financial wellness are interrelated that I just said, I wanted to measure that and sort of expose the connection. And then the pandemic hit and I felt like, well, okay, awareness of the interrelatedness of our financial and our physical and emotional well-being, that's check. Like that's done. Thanks. Thanks, COVID. Thanks for that. So, but I still think that there's room to increase our understanding of that connection between health, access to healthcare, and financial well-being. And so I plan to. I I plan to go back to that project and create some kind of measure of financial vulnerability that relates to healthcare, and then hopefully to develop solutions that help people overcome that vulnerability. Tangibly, tactically, what that means every day, I'm writing something. I'm researching, interviewing, and writing something, trying to expose the gazillion ways that individual consumers are making financial decisions sometimes struggling to get value for their money, sometimes struggling to get the care they need, sometimes really stressed and frustrated about the money they have to spend or would, you know, don't have, but would spend if, if they had it and the inequity that that raises. And I just, I write something almost every day on those themes, on many aspects of financial anxiety and vulnerability in healthcare. And that brings me to my other idea for 2021, which I've long thought about, is doing a podcast. Ooh, do it. I love that. Well, you know, we'll we'll definitely be looking out for that research. We are, that's absolutely our beat and something that's that's right up our alley and something that we want to be a solution that's all about, you know, bridging that gap. And for those who are somewhat vulnerable, somewhat underinsured, having some firepower, putting some cash in families' hands when they really need it is sort of what we're all about. So we'll definitely be interested to see what what the research shows. Can I can I add one thing to that? I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt. One thing I wanted to add is that one of the things I've learned in my career, not so much in my formal research, but just being a healthcare insider, is that people with all the resources available to them can still feel vulnerable. The vulnerability is tangible. Folks who don't have money or access to information or access to care, it's also a state of mind. And I have been sort of shocked by how ubiquitous that sense of vulnerability is when it comes to healthcare. So at the Kennedy School, I would have, you know, extraordinary people come into my office and say, hey, I used to have benefits from my last, you know, very important job, and now I don't, what should I do? You know, people, brilliant people, much smarter than me, come to me completely helpless. What should I do? People who started a company and had massive success, you know, sold the company, now they don't have benefits, but they have a family. What should I do? So I think, you know, part of the point is that anyone can feel vulnerable. And it's not just you know, it's a much wider swath of our population than I think many people realize. That's absolutely right. And, you know, I started in in the health space as a broker, helping people sign up for insurance. And then I moved into a marketing role. And because that's what I had done previously, and I fell in love with 
this challenge and felt like it was really important and I needed to throw my energies into it. And so ended up in a marketing role and I'm working alongside product designers and engineers and people who are just so insanely smart. And then open enrollment would happen and they would come over to my desk and be like, which plan should I pick? Right, exactly. And we worked for a health insurance company, but I had to coach them. Right. And so I I know what you mean, but it's, it's confusing for everyone. Well, okay, before I let you go, I want to ask you one last question. And that is, besides your own book, which we will link in the show notes on our blog, is there a book or a resource that had big impact on you, either personally or professionally, that you would recommend for our listeners? Sure. I feel like I may be, this may be so predictable after everything else I've told you about myself and my roots, but I would say The Healing of America by T.R. Reed is one of the best healthcare books I've ever read. It's basically a comparison of different health systems around the world, but it's told it's done through a narrative lens. So the author T.R. Reed travels around the world looking for a solution to a shoulder problem and what he encounters in each country really reflects the structure of that health system and the culture of that health system. It's brilliant. I loved it. That's awesome. Okay. Thank you for that. Well, I'll definitely include a link in the show notes and that'll be posted at joinbrella.com on our blog. So I think that's all the time we have today, but Deb, I want to thank you so much for sharing your insights and your passion with us. And I hope that this has been as useful and inspiring for our listeners as it has been for me. And so thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. So if any of you would like to follow along with what Deb is up to, you can find her on Twitter at, at Gordon Deb. You can also find her articles on Forbes.com and on her website, debgordon.com. Also, if any of this discussion resonated with you and you want to get involved with us at Brella, we would love to hear from you. You can reach out to us at sales at joinbrella.com. We are working with brokers and their Texas-based clients on off-cycle enrollments. So don't wait until your next benefit cycle to get your team the coverage that they need. Thanks so much. Visit joinbrella.com slash podcast for notes from today's show. And if you liked the episode, share it with a colleague. This helps us spread the word. Be sure to subscribe or follow in your favorite podcast player so you don't miss our next episode. And that's a wrap. This is Laura Cave and Mike Zarillo from the Better Benefits Podcast. Thanks for listening and have a great week.